On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Nitsin Shapira about building resilient serverless applications. This is Serverless Chats, episode number two. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Nitsan Shapira. Hey Nitsan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you are the CEO and co-founder of Epsigon, uh, one of those hot serverless startups out of Israel. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what Epsigon is up to? Uh, yes, definitely. So I'm, as you mentioned, I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Epsigon. I'm based uh, out of Israel and San Francisco, currently kind of in between. Uh, I'm an engineer, a computer engineer with a background in cybersecurity and embedded systems and this kind of more low-level background. And in the recent years, also, of course, the cloud, uh, all the way to serverless. Um, and Epsagon is a company focused on monitoring and troubleshooting for modern applications. So the entire uh, field of cloud applications that are built with microservices, serverless, managed services where you don't have, don't have access to the host, very distributed. How do, you, uh, how do you understand what's going on in your production? How can you troubleshoot issues uh, as fast as possible, do it automatically, and in a way that is suitable for these kind of modern environments? So for example, using agents is something that you cannot do. So I wanted to talk to you about building resilient serverless applications. And I think you have the, the right experience for this uh, with what you do. But now that we're building serverless applications and we're sort of going beyond traditional applications as well as traditional microservices, if microservices can be considered traditional, but uh, you're starting to break things down into multiple functions. Uh, you obviously are using a lot of third-party services or managed services from the cloud provider. Um, so my question here to kind of get us started is what what is the main difference between a traditional application, uh, whether you know server-based or or container-based and microservices, and and sort of moving to this serverless environment? Um, sure. So I think one the main the main difference is that a lot of the things are out of your control now, which is uh, is a good thing because this is what you want when you go serverless. But on the other hand, you lose control over some of the things that's going on in your application. So when things don't go well, it can be very difficult to know where 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 they broke. And then if you want to build something that's resilient, that's going to work in, in high scale, in very high reliability, uh, without many surprises, you really have to think about all the different scenarios that can go wrong, which is not just my code had an exception, but maybe uh, I got a timeout, I got an out of memory condition, I got a series of events that didn't go well, uh, synchronous events perhaps, and it's very and it seems that everything worked, but actually it didn't. Uh, how do I know about these problems, even if everything seems okay? So the, the number of problems that can happen is just growing when you go serverless. So I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, so why don't we kind of dive into this and and uh, and start talking about some of these individual problems or or some of these differences, and and maybe we can start with 
uh, troubleshooting, right? So what what's different uh, when you're troubleshooting a serverless application versus a more traditional server-based application? Uh, yeah, so there are uh, several key differences. Uh, the first one is that when you go serverless, you go distributed uh, and in a very uh, significant way, more than with uh, containers, for example, because those functions are kind of nanoservices. And when you combine them together, we are seeing uh, organizations with uh, over 5,000 functions or more, which is just a very high number of nodes in the graph, if you look at it this way. So it's very, very distributed. So when something breaks, usually there are many more components involved in the chain of events. So it's going to be much more complicated to track what happened uh, to find the cause of the problem. So distributed would be a very important thing. And the other thing is that there are new things that can go wrong. So all those timeouts, all those out of memory conditions, they happen all the time and very, very difficult to predict them. And it's not something people are used to uh, when they work with traditional services. Uh, and finally, the way uh, the possibilities that you have as an engineer or DevOps to understand what's going on in your application is again, more limited because you have no access to the host, so you can't install agents and so on. So all you get is basically the basic logs and metrics that the cloud provider gives you, which makes it even more difficult to know what's going on on the application layer and not just the simple metrics, because they are usually not going to be enough to troubleshoot a complicated problem. Yeah, and I think you know, with something like Lambda or any function as a service, uh, these are ephemeral compute, right? So you have you know many execution environments or containers spinning up in the background, um, but those go away. So you, you can't go back and sort of look at the logs and see uh, what that server did. Uh, and really, the only logs available to you, you know, that are like dumped to CloudWatch, for example, uh, those are only there if your application actually sends logs. It's not sort of logged yes. automatically. That's that's exactly. The, the challenge, because when bad things happen, usually you didn't think about them before. And then you don't have the information that you're looking for in the log. And, and then you also don't have anywhere to connect to, to investigate, because as you mentioned, it's ephemeral. So that makes things very difficult because you can't think about everything that can possibly happen and put it in the log. And on the other hand, you really have nowhere to go to after the thing happened. So. You don't really have anything to do uh, just by using the logs. This is uh, basically the conclusion. Yeah, and so also if you're using a number of remote services or or uh, managed services from the provider, uh, where does the debugger go there? I mean, how do you see the flow of information? I mean, you have a lot of events. You have these highly event-driven uh, applications with information flying all over the place. Uh, you know, how do you how do you keep track of that where do you see those logs so generally you don't see it and that's that's the big challenge uh, this is of course why we are building a tool to help to help you uh, but generally speaking um, the events that are going through the system are usually much more meaningful than the logs uh, from what we saw so if you actually know the events and data that is uh, flowing between different components that's going to tell a very good story of what happened from the request until the uh, problem that happened and can really help you troubleshoot the, the things. 
Uh, these events are not going to be in the log unless you specifically wrote it, wrote it in the log, but usually this is not the case. So um, getting those events uh, is something that can really help. All right, so let's move on to the things that can go wrong in a serverless environment, right? So obviously, uh, if you're using compute like uh, Lambda functions or Microsoft Azure functions, uh, you have your normal code execution errors, right? So you're going to get a can't connect to a resource or can't parse a string, and those will be logged and those will be available to you. Uh, but when you start dealing with distributed systems uh, and you're you're thinking about connecting to SNS topics or uh, SQS queues or, or other type of uh, managed services. Um, you know, what are the things that can go wrong there and, and you know, in distributed systems in general and, and maybe more specifically uh, in serverless environments? So the things that are more specific is that, of course, in the past, usually you had one big monolithic application and when something went wrong, it would produce an error and something written to the log, and that would be pretty much the story of what happened. And now when you are talking event-driven and distributed, uh, so in many cases, it's very asynchronous. So for example, one function can perform perfectly fine, produce a message to some SNS, and then another function will get this message a little bit later, and, and then it will fail. But everything seemed fine. So the problem is actually that the message was not in the right uh, contract, for example, between the two services. So it's very difficult to uh, to see what went wrong because if you look at each function, everything seems right. I mean, this one did something right. The other one failed as it should have. But why was the message like this? Because the two uh, teams, perhaps, that wrote these two services didn't actually coordinate together. So suddenly you have... Uh, another thing that can go wrong, which is actually the kind of the agreement between how do we communicate, how do we transfer messages and events between services. So these these things were not issues in the past because it was it was all just functions calling other functions in your in the same binary process. So this is something very new. Yeah, and I think the other thing you have that's different is this idea of the retry behavior, right? So I think most people are familiar with uh, synchronous invocation of, of, of a resource where you, you make a call, it does something, and then you get a response back, and, and maybe that's an error, and then you can deal with it there. Um, but now as you move to serverless, uh, you start dealing with things like asynchronous uh, or stream-based processing, and, and with asynchronous, certainly... Uh, your your code that calls that resource uh, doesn't know what happens, right? It just gets a response back that says, all right, I got your event, um, and then something happens down the line. So sort of what is the, um, uh, what's the difference or what's the impact uh, of, uh, of this retry behavior on serverless applications and sort of how we think about it? Um, so one of the things I'm, I'm talking about in conferences, such as the one we we had in Boston, uh, so you uh, invited me to. So um, is is the fact that the, these retries are something that is um, kind of considered as a good practice by the cloud provider uh, to recover from errors. So for example, if a function fails, let's try to run it two more times uh, and then see what happens. So if it's an SNS message, so we're gonna run it two more times as long as the message is um uh new enough so that's 
that's something that is not really um, written in any programming book or software design book, but this is something that the architects of AWS thought would be a good idea. And it is a good idea sometimes, but for the developer, uh, it can be very confusing. So when, when it happens, usually it's very confusing because you just didn't know that this is the same uh, invocation running one or two more times. And when uh, you have to think about it, it's very difficult to plan. So this is where uh, concepts such as uh, idempotency uh, come into action when you, how are you supposed to write code that it can run multiple times without having a bad effect or bad things happen. So eventually it comes to the fact that people can't really plan an application that will be retried as many times as wanted with everything going right. So it's basically kind of a constraint that you have to live with. Uh, you need to try and take it to your advantage when possible. But most of the time, uh, I think many people would prefer to just go it, to do it the standard way. So don't try and run my code again without telling me because I'm not sure what's going to happen. Yeah, and I and I think that the uh, the thing that's important that you mentioned about item potency is that obviously if your uh, transactions are getting tried or your events are being replayed multiple times by the cloud provider, uh, your, your code has to deal with that, right? And so um, you know for certain transactions it might not make that big of a uh, big of a deal, but if you are dealing with financial transactions, for example, you don't want those. Uh, to retry or to submit the same, you know, maybe charge requests multiple times. Um, but I think that, um, you know, if you if you think about the basics of of the retry policies or, or how those work, um, you know, the two times for an asynchronous Lambda event makes sense. Uh, and if you're dealing with an S, uh, excuse me, an SQS queue, um, you know, then you have redrive policies that you can put in place so that, um, you know, the message will only be tried a few times. That's what, that way messages don't get stuck forever. Um, but if we, if we're thinking about, uh, sort of the, the, the redrive, uh, here, or, or, or maybe just the asynchronous invocation of a Lambda function, what, what do we do, um, when that, Lambda function gets tried three times and then it fails. So first of all, you need to know about it, uh, which most people don't, because again, you have no indication and the log is not going to tell you. It. So knowing the fact that something broke and and it was retried is going to be very important when it actually happens. Um, and I think just when you use a service, you need to know the properties and the limitation of that service. So if you are writing a Lambda function that's triggered by a, a Kinesis stream, you need this Lambda to do stream processing because if it's doing something else with the data, it's probably not the right thing. So you need the Lambda to actually take the data, process it and send it somewhere. And then usually you wouldn't mind if it happens again. So I think it's possible to write uh, like microservices or nano services in, in Lambda functions or any other service for that matter that is uh, contained enough. So it will be able to handle retries. Uh, but then, and then when you combine them together, in theory, it should work. Uh, the problem is that people just connect these services to each other without thinking and they have, you know, hundreds of Lambdas with many kinesis and SNS topics and everything is running around. 
and it's not really working as I uh, suggested, of course, because people develop software fast. But if you had the time, you could actually plan every service to be working the right way. Yeah, and and if you're if you're dealing with uh, these failed events, right? So obviously there's dead letter queues um, as part of uh, AWS, at least where you can put a dead letter queue or attach a dead letter queue to a Lambda function. So if it's invoked asynchronously and it fails the three times, uh, then that that event goes into that queue there. And you can do the same thing with an SQS uh, queue, for example, where if, uh, if something fails after a certain number of times, your redrive policy will move that into a dead letter queue as well. But but then you have this issue where now you have dead letter queues uh, or multiple queues with events living in them. You have to uh, inspect those events. You have to set up alarms so you know those events are in there. Uh, and then you potentially need a way to replay those events. Um, so what about using something like step functions? Um, uh, like, What are the advantages of, of, of using uh, a state machine or, or, or using something like AWS step functions? Uh, so... Step functions has sorry has several advantages. Um, first of all, it has the advantage of uh, being asynchronous, so you can actually have several functions, kind of um, almost calling each other, but not really calling each other, but passing events asynchronously. So you wouldn't wait and pay for the accumulated running time of all the functions. That would be one advantage. And the second advantage is that it allows you to actually implement different rules and mechanism in how the application is working that you really, it's a bit difficult to do without. So you can say that uh, if if a certain event happened, only then you in, you invoke this function or the other function. So eventually you don't really have to uh, be coupled directly to the data and you can process it in different steps that will allow you to, I think this is a good example of resiliency because uh, this using step functions the right way can really scale uh, very nicely because uh, every step in the step machine will generate an event for the next step. So you don't have to worry about everything at once. You can kind of split your application logic into smaller step that each one of them is much more likely to succeed. This is kind of on on the design level anyway, this is how I look at it. Uh, You can use something that helps you split your logic in a very um, kind of accurate way. You just decide exactly what you want to do in each step. Yeah, and I I love um, step functions because it gives you that ability to do function composition, like you said. Um, You know, when you, you start thinking about individual uh, functions or single functions that do one thing well, uh, you know, making those all sort of talk to one another and and creating the choreography for that is sort of a you know difficult thing to do. So you start to introduce step functions uh, into the equation, and now you have a step function acting like a uh, sort of a traditional uh, monolithic application where uh, it can call you know subroutines and aggregate that information together and then sort of do something with it. Um, so I think step functions are certainly a uh, a really interesting way to solve that function composition problem. Uh, they do kind of get expensive, uh, which is uh, um, is something to think about depending on how you're designing your application and and what level of uh, control you need. But uh, so, anyways, so let's move on to something that your um, 
very, very familiar with, which would be monitoring a serverless application. Uh, so how do we how do we go about doing that? How do we monitor a serverless application? Yeah, sure. So um, different ways. I mean, you can do it uh, in, a, in a simple way and in a more complex way. Depends on the complexity of your application, of course. So if you have just a few functions, uh, I would recommend using whatever AWS provides because it's already there. So you have CloudWatch, of course. So it will provide you with logs and metrics that will allow you to identify pretty quickly if something failed and then go to the log and find out what happened. So that's almost in 100% of the cases that we are seeing is the first uh, step. And then uh, the second step would be when you go into a, a little more functions than that, I would say 10, 20 or more, uh, suddenly they start to get connected to each other. You start to create some kind of a distributed application. And that's where the individual logs and metrics will, didn't, will not really tell the story because they only uh, provide information about individual components. And many people at that point will aggregate the logs somewhere. So they will just stream the logs into a log aggregation service such as ELK or anything else. This will allow them to search in the logs and hopefully find problems uh, faster. Uh, but then eventually you have a distributed application and in order to really understand what's going on there, especially the more complex stuff, you need some kind of a distributed tracing technology. So what is actually distributed tracing basically to know uh, how different services are sending messages to one another and how it's all connected from end to end. And some companies will implement some techniques of tracing in the logs. So you can have identifiers in the logs that will kind of go through. Then you can search them in your log aggregation tool. So this would be probably the last step before using a dedicated uh, solution for that. So. It can work pretty well, and we, we saw people do it in very high scale with hundreds and thousands of functions. Um, but at some point, there is also the question of how much time do you want to spend? And it's going to take you a lot of time to implement different tools, especially based on logs. And then the whole point of serverless is, of course, developing fast. And then eventually, if you're spending 30% or 50% of your developer's time doing that, that's where uh, we recommend considering an automated solution that will uh, do as much of the work for you. Uh, eventually, your your hope as a developer, as a development manager, is that your uh, your developers will focus on building software that matters to your business and not building software that helps you monitor your business software. So this would be, uh, of course, when you get to a high scale, Usually, this is where people look to uh, look for a solution. So you mentioned some of the tools that AWS has. Um, and so they have X-Ray that does some tracing. Uh, obviously, CloudWatch logs uh, does logging. Um, but maybe explain the difference between those two things and, and why tracing is an important component. Uh, yeah, so logging is pretty simple. It basically means um, you... Usually logs is a text. Log is a you know text file in some way or text data that is written either by the developer uh, intentionally or produced automatically from some system that produces logs. 
and then you get text. So textual data is very common, you know, it's everywhere, uh, but it it's still text. So it's not structured. It's not it's not even JSON. JSON, for example, is formatted, is structured. You can say, I want this field, I want this hierarchy. Logs are eventually going to be text-based files. Uh, and then using logs, you can do many things, right? Uh, tracing is the way to kind of, again, trace. What is the trace? So let's say you got a, a HTTP request. So a trace will go through the lifetime of the request. So it can go from one service to another service to the next service. So that will be a trace that's going through my system and tells the story of what happened. And the data of the trace is involved of what services, what data was transmitted, how it was transmitted, how much time did it take to transmit it from each point, and eventually the order of the events. So this would be a trace that really can tell you what happened in every point of the way. And you can put it on a timeline to identify bottleneck, to identify where you spent your time. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that we are doing is actually we take the logs and we put them on the trace. So for us, the log is just another type of data that, that of course, it's textual, but it's very useful. But it's much more useful if it's in the right context and you know, on the right timeline. So you have five services, you get trace data, you get log data, you get latency, everything. Uh, is uh, like a story. So I would say that a trace is structured and it's uh, time-based uh, and log is textual data that somebody will have to structure in order to understand. So how do frameworks like Open Tracing and Open Census help with all of this? So these frameworks are very useful uh, as a standard way to write your tracing data. So people said, okay, so there is this concept called tracing. How can I uh, kind of standardize it? So people won't have to invent it every time. So open tracing, for example, will give you a standard way to create trace, to create spans, uh, to create all those things that eventually tell you the story of what's going on in your system. Then you can implement in your code uh, ways to send trace data in the open tracing format to some backend that will analyze this data, uh, display it, provide information of it. So these are just ways to standardize the, the traces. And for example, at Epsagon, we make sure that our traces are open tracing compatible. So if uh, someone wants to add their own manual traces, they can easily do it without worrying about the format or uh, being, you know, people want to be compatible eventually. They always prefer to be compatible. So that makes a ton of sense. So uh, let's talk about X-Ray again uh, for a minute. So X-Ray, you go in, you instrument your code, uh, and then as your functions run, it samples it, and you can see uh, you know, calls to databases or calls to other resources and sort of the latency involved there. Um, but what about calls to an SQS uh, queue and, and then the, the function that processes it and then that sends it somewhere else? Uh, that that flow of data can can X-ray show you all that information? Uh, so you can do it to some extent. Uh, X-ray will integrate pretty well with the AWS APIs inside the Lambda function, for example, and will tell you uh, what kind of API calls you did. Uh, it's mostly for performance measurements, so you can understand how much time the DynamoDB 
put item operation took or something uh, of that sort. Uh, however, it doesn't try to go into the application layer and the data layer. So that means so if uh, some kind of information is passed from one function to another via an SNS message queue and then going into an S3 triggering another function, all this data layer is something that X-Ray doesn't look at because it's meant to measure performance. And that's why it would not be able to connect uh, asynchronous events going through multiple functions. Because again, this is not the tool's purpose. The purpose is to, uh, again, measure performance and improve the performance of certain specific Lambda functions that you want to optimize, for example. You mentioned automation a few minutes ago, and I think that's a really important um, uh, really important concept in terms of instrumenting your functions uh, so that they do the proper tracing and logging. Uh, so obviously, in a more traditional application or a monolithic application, um, you might include your libraries and some of that stuff, but now we're talking about every single function needing to include uh, this instrumentation. And that, in my opinion at least, is sort of a burden uh, for developers to do that, but also pretty easy to forget, um, you know, say, oh, I got to go back and add this, or maybe even it's a, it's a matter of uh, which level of logging you've got switched on. So, so what are some of the options for developers and for companies that want to create these policies to make sure that these are automatically instrumented? Um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, there's Lambda layers, which is a, is a, a possibility. Uh, but, but what are some of the other options to auto-instrument functions so that the developers don't have to worry about it? Um, yeah, by the way, it's not just worrying. It's also, I mean, it's not just the fact that you can forget. It's also just going to take you a certain amount of time always that you're gonna basically waste instead of writing your own business software. So even if you do remember to do it every time, it's still gonna take you uh, some time. Uh, so some ways that can work is of course uh, embedded embed in your standard libraries that you work with. So if you have a library that is commonly used to communicate between services, you wanna embed uh, that uh, tracing information or x-ray information there so it will always be there so that will this will kind of automate a lot of the work for you um, so that's just a matter of what type of tool do you use so if you use x-ray you're still going to have to do some kind of manual work uh, and it's it's fine at first the problem is that when you suddenly grow from 100 functions to a thousand functions that's where you're gonna be probably um, a little bit uh, annoyed or even lost because it's going to be just a lot of work and it doesn't seem like something that really scales. That's where, I mean, anything manual doesn't really scale. Um, this is why you use serverless because you don't want to scale servers man manually. Right. And, uh, and with Epsigon, you have a way to uh, instrument the functions automatically, correct? Uh, yes, definitely. That's one of the things we do, uh, we actually use Lambda layers that you mentioned uh, that you can just do with probably less than a few minutes. You will be up and running with distributed maps of Epsagon uh, automatically traced and produced because we, we know how to add a layer to your functions through the Epsagon dashboard with one click. And this layer goes and instruments the function. Uh, produces all those events and traces from the code while it's running, and our backend can then identify uh, how everything is connected. So uh, it's it's automatic in a way that 
in many cases, you don't have to even change the code on your end. So that's very convenient for the developers. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you have like a hundred Lambda functions already written, you don't want to have to go back into every single one of those and add some new type of uh, instrumentation. But anyway, so Nitsen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it is great that you are sharing all your knowledge with the serverless community and Epsigon's doing a great job. Um, if uh, anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I am, my email is nitsan at epsagon.com. Pretty simple. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Nitsan Shapira, uh, my full name. And you can also uh, just um, just getting in touch with me, LinkedIn. It's pretty easy. I'm, I'm very responsive. So uh, of course, uh, you can check out the Epsagon website. I have a bunch of blog posts that I, I usually publish there as well. Um, yes. Awesome. So I will get all of that into the show notes. And uh, thanks again, Nitsen. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a big thank you to Nitsen Shapira for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash two. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.